And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, presented by Two True Freaks. I am your ever-loving host, J. David Weeder, but as always, as we've become accustomed to, you can call me Dave. This, of course, is the podcast where I talk all about Daredevil, Marvel's Man Without Fear, Netflix superstar, lawyer by day, superhero by night. That's right, it's all about Daredevil, even when we're talking about Spider-Man. I say that this week because we are in the second chapter of the Death of Gene DeWolf storyline, an incredibly gripping Spider-Man tale that does feature Daredevil. Now again, as I kind of alluded to last week, this is about the two characters primarily. It's more of a compare-contrast character study, as well as just a good way to look at a great story. And if it's a great story, why would I not want to cover that? So, as mentioned, we are at the second part of a four-part story. Where did we leave off last time? Police captain and Spider-Man supporting character Jean DeWolf was brutally murdered in her bed, shot to death, and Spider-Man, who was shocked by the killing, volunteered to help with the investigation. This teamed up Spider-Man with Sergeant Stan Carter, and the investigation proceeded, not getting very far. Meanwhile, our boy Daredevil entered the picture while defending some criminals in court. These were some punks who mugged Peter's friend and Aunt May's boarding house guest, Mr. Ernie Popchick. And this brought Peter into conflict with Matt, since Matt allowed the criminals to walk free. And in this little altercation, Matt deduced that Spider-Man's secret identity was Peter Parker. Now, after the hearing, Matt was sharing his misgivings about the case to his college mentor, the presiding judge on the case as well, Horace Rosenthal. But when Rosenthal excused himself for a moment, Matt discovered the Sin Eater who is Gene DeWolf's murderer, skulking about in the judge's chambers, wielding that big-ass shotgun. And while Matt was able to dodge the killer in the darkness of the office, when the curtains opened and the judge returned, Matt found himself limited. And so Matt froze for just a moment, and that was just enough time for the Sin Eater to open fire on Judge Rosenthal. And that is where issue 107 ends, which brings us to, naturally, Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man, issue number 108, the November 1985 issue. This bad boy features a cover by Rich Buckler, which shows Spider-Man leaping into the air, dodging the Sin Eater's shotgun blasts, which is an act that endangers the gathered crowd, as mentioned on the cover. Of the four comics in this storyline, this has the weakest cover. I mean, Spider-Man is leaping like he was surprised mid-poop. It's not the best angle, I'll say that. And with the blank background, it doesn't help. Now, it does appear we get a cameo by Mike Wallace in the corner. Here's the thing, and I tested this with other people. I showed the cover to several people at work, my wife. The center of this cover, where the eye is normally naturally drawn, is focused on the crotch and ass of Spider-Man. It's a straight-up gooch shot. And gooch shots ain't good, folks. We don't want gooch shots. We want something with dynamic flair. I don't want to see the taint of Spider-Man. But I assure you, again, this is the weakest cover. The other three, including last week's, are spectacular. Now, within this cover, we have the story, The Death of Gene DeWolf, Chapter 2, 
The Pride of Sin, which is written by Peter David, penciled by Rich Buckler, inked by Brett Breeding, Joseph Rubenstein, Kyle Baker, and Pat Redding. A lot of hands in the pot. You would think that would work against it, but not actually. And of course, it is collected in various printings of the Death of Gene DeWolf trade paperback. We got screwed on the intel, okay? Nobody knew those people were in there. It would be perfectly normal for a person to have doubts about the morality of what we just asked you to do. Is that a question, sir? No, it's not. Tune into what I'm trying to say to you. Do you know what a sin eater is? Well, that's what we are. We are the sin eaters. It means that we take the moral excrement that we find in this equation and we bury it down deep inside of us so that the rest of our cause can stay pure. That is the job. We are morally indefensible and absolutely necessary. You understand? I was five and he was six. We rode on horses made of sticks. He wore black and I wore white. He would always win the fight. Bang, bang. He shot me down. Bang, bang. I hit the ground. Bang, bang. That awful sound. Bang, bang. My baby shot me down. And we open our comic to a memory from Matt Murdock's days in law school. Judge Rosenthal is advising Matt to be true to himself, so on and so forth. Not only is this opening another play on our emotions, much like last week's trip through the life of Gene DeWolf, it also serves as a bit of a recap, and it underscores the relationship established last issue by giving us a very clear idea that this was a mentor-student relationship. And we see the repeating of the chorus that Judge Horace really puts on the table, No Fear as well as the idea that criminals deserve a fair trial, which is a bit of a reference to professional detachment that lawyers sometimes have to bring to the table. When they're defending somebody who's not exactly innocent, but everybody deserves that due process, sometimes you have to stuff some of that emotion down. And you're thinking, why is Dave pointing this out? It's a theme. It's going to come back, so bear with me. And looking at this scene, I do want to add, I think this was likely before Jack was murdered. Because in the original timeline, pre-Man Without Fear, Matt was in law school when Jack died. He was near graduation. So it can be readily assumed that some of what Horace is talking about is actually more along the lines of Have No Fear and contributed at least a little bit of raw material for Matt's career as Daredevil. My only real gripe on this scene is on the last panel where Matt just looks a little too square. It doesn't look right. It doesn't come off looking like Matt. He looks like a Rubik's Cube in a red wig. It it looks extremely awkward. It's one of Buckler's few missteps in the art presentation. And of course, from there, we flash back to the present where we left off. Judge Rosenthal is dead. He all shot up, laying at Matt's feet, and the crowd is gathering, of course, because shotguns ain't quiet. And Matt pushes past that crowd to pursue the Sin Eater, of course, because he's Daredevil. That's what he does. Now here, I have a gripe. Not necessarily artistic quality, but more presentation, because if it isn't clear that Rosenthal is dead on one panel, let's have two. Bear in mind, this is a two-panel page. The first one is a close-up of Rosenthal laying on the ground bleeding. The second one pulls back to show the crowd, the doorway, and Matt's feet. I get what you're trying to do. It is cinematic, but it somehow loses some of the impact of the image. Flashing back to last week's issue, the one shot of Gene's corpse really proved that less is more, especially when you're talking about brutal murders and corpses and just things that generally make people a little bit uncomfortable. Now to compare this murder with Gene's, like Peter, this murder is personal to Matt. 
Gene was Peter's friend and confidant. This is Matt's mentor and peer. Unlike Peter and Gene, though, Matt was there when it happened. More so, he had this moment of doubt where he was, I don't want to use the term overwhelmed, but he was a little bit flummoxed. And that moment of pause allowed this to happen. That's got to sting people, especially for somebody as emotional and analytical as Matt Murdock. Those are two things that don't necessarily go well together often, especially in things of high emotional turmoil. Now again, now both of our heroes, both Spider-Man and Daredevil, have lost somebody to the Sin Eater. The main brunt of this story, a lot of my discussion will be how Daredevil and Spider-Man deal with the fallout of their failure, or perceived failure if you will, and really what are the things that spark those reactions. So we pull back from the judge's chambers and we find Mr. Popchick, Peter, and May leaving the courthouse and they're still fuming about the muggers walking free. Mr. Popchick makes a point of mentioning that he fought in World War II and he brought a Nazi gun home as a souvenir. Now, as this discussion is happening, the Sin Eater hits the streets running from the courthouse and May, Popchick, and Peter get separated in this panic. So with all this chaos beginning, first off, I want to point out that Charles Bronson makes a very clear cameo reading a newspaper with a headline about a vigilante. Well, for those that don't know, Charles Bronson was an action star. One of his main claims to fame was the franchise Death Wish, of which Death Wish 3 came out in 1985. The concept of Death Wish was that Charles Bronson was a fairly normal family man who, after the death and rape of his wife and daughter, went on to become a very violent, murderous vigilante. So it's a nice wink-wink. It's also not terribly far from what we're looking at here. Whether intentionally or unintentionally, it underscores the ideas that sometimes the legal system fails us or seems to fail us. There are all kinds of technicalities, loopholes. We've seen killers walk free. We've seen innocent people put in prison. And it is easy to lose faith in that system at times. Even Matt Murdock has to come against that from time to time. And this happens to be perfectly placed within the conversation where Mr. Popchick is really upset about the muggers walking, of course, and accuses Judge Horace Rosenthal of being a Nazi sympathizer. It's easy when we're intensely upset to say things we don't necessarily mean or sometimes that don't even make sense. But remember, just because a judge rules against you, it does not mean he is a Nazi sympathizer. With that, with that emotion, with that intense frustration, sadness, anger, whatever you want to throw in there, it's probably appropriate. I really do feel for Popchick. I mean, in this situation, he is a very clear victim. There's no gray area in that. We saw the mugging. It was brutal. He didn't provoke it. He was just walking down the street. And yet the people who did this, those that grabbed him off the sidewalk, punched him, kicked him, stole his money, they're walking free. Yes, I'm angry too. That happens in real life and I find it infuriating and I know where Popchick is, but it's important to bring some rationale to the table. The trial itself hasn't begun. What we saw in last issue was an arraignment. So the day in court is yet to come and these people may or may not face true justice. Let's be honest, sometimes the court system can be extremely slow, excruciatingly so. And all you want is for the people who did wrong to get their comeuppance. And we're going to talk a little bit more in-depth about the Sin Eater in just one moment. Uh, Again, this is a regular guy, pretty well built, wearing a purple shirt, green face mask, wielding a shotgun. So, of course, a guy like that's going to catch some attention on the street. And the Sin Eater says, I only want those who misuse their power. Saying he's not a threat to the crowd. Let me make a point of mentioning this. We have two victims so far. We have Gene DeWolf, a police captain, and Judge Rosenthal. So we're dealing with people who are high-ranking in the legal system. That's extremely important. 
And we're not going to get to that for a couple of episodes when we put everything out on the table, when the mystery is revealed. But that's very much a clue and a theme. And I want to put that to the wall for just a moment because we see the Sin Eater getting mad when the audience naturally flees. If I see a person with a shotgun and a ski mask, I tend to go the other direction. Sin Eater seems to need this captive audience when he speaks, showing a great deal of ego. That's going to be very, very important in the discussion that we're about to get into because, of course, Spider-Man arrives on the scene. Peter has managed to get away switch into his togs and begins to fight the Sin Eater, who does not hesitate to turn his shotgun on the web spinner. Now, of course, Spider-Man dodges the blast, but it hits somebody in the gathered crowd, as we saw on the cover. But let me bring this to the point here. The Sin Eater was avoiding shooting the crowd. They're innocents, they're just bystanders. But as soon as Spider-Man shows up, the shells start flying before Spider-Man even throws a blow. This is interesting because, first of all, Rosenthal and Gene DeWolf both seem to be premeditated planned assassinations. Spider-Man and that poor random person in the crowd are just collateral damage. They're not targets. Yet he has no hesitation because, well, Spider-Man is there to capture Sin Eater. So he is capable of certain spontaneous action, but primarily he seems to be planning these out. So that kind of brings me to this question. What exactly is the Sin Eater? Now, I'm not talking about the name Sin Eater. We're going to get to that, of course. But more in the terms of the modus operandi, the nature of the killer. So I did some really interesting research, and by interesting I mean a little bit uncomfortable, but it comes down to this. At this stage, he's teetering on a fence. He could be looked at as a serial killer. A serial killer is defined as three or more victims over more than a month with psychological gratification. Let me underscore that psychological gratification because I'm coming back to that. Now remember, Sin Eater is only killing those who misuse their power. Sinners, primarily the sin of pride, which is the title of the story. So let's look back at these deaths. Gene's death was again stealthy. It was off the grid in the middle of the night. Rosenthal was different. This was in a public place during the middle of the day, as we saw Rosenthal mentioning lunch. Now, maybe Sin Eater was emboldened by the first murder and the fact that the police have no leads. I'm not sure, but there is a stark difference between creeping into a house late at night and killing the victim in their sleep versus a courthouse in the middle of the day. But again, these are both planned. There is thought that's gone into it, the location, the weapon, and of course the victim themselves. So here we have two, possibly three victims in a short time because of the person in the crowd. So technically he hasn't earned his serial killer merit badge yet. By kill number two, Ted Bundy or John Wayne Gacy hadn't earned it either. So let's talk about serial killers, because that's a topic everybody wants to put on the table. There is a progression to a serial killer. Certain phases that they go through again and again. The serial killer starts out with an aura phase, which they kind of withdraw from reality a bit. They become a little bit more antisocial, wrapped up in their thought process, and kind of their own desires. And then that moves into action, which is called the trolling phase. They actively begin searching for a victim, normally within certain parameters. Again, we're looking at psychological gratification, and that can manifest itself in several different ways. That moves into the wooing phase once they've found the victim, where they lure the victim in, either by seduction or by other nefarious means, which leads, of course, to the capture phase, where the victim is captured, and that's, of course, leading to the murder or totem phase. This is where we have the actual killing of the victim and a taking of a trophy, a totem, if you will. This is important because I'm going to put this directly on Front Street. It is mentioned that Gene DeWolf's badge has gone missing. 
and we see that badge on the Sin Eater's belt. Letting us know not only that this is the killer, but they took a souvenir. Also on the Sin Eater's belt, Judge Rosenthal's gavel. It's these two items, the idea of taking that trophy, that really do make me believe that this could have been a serial killer. So the Sin Eater is taking these trophies, and that leads me to believe that this is the beginning of an evolution of a serial killer. After the murder, after taking of the trophy, there's a phase called the depression phase, where the fantasy has been fulfilled, and you're back at square one. They're bummed that it's over, which typically leads back to the aura phase and rinse, lather, repeat. So, so far, we've had a cop, a judge, a potential third, Spider-Man, a crime fighter, authority figures, and law. People in power who misuse that power. Very, very similar to being disappointed in the legal system. Now, I mentioned the psychological gratification, so I'm going to bring that back to the table. Serial killers are generally looking to replace something, usually emotional or tangible in some way, shape, or form. It could be a father, a girlfriend, or an authority figure. I know what you're thinking, and you're right. I know who this person is. I know why they're doing it, but it's a journey, not a destination. So I want to talk about what we are presented as the story presents itself, rather than coming in with the knowledge of who the Sin Eater really is. I'm more or less just trying to put the clues on the table as we come to it, but I believe that this was a path that was going to lead to a serial killer of some way, shape, or form. However, of course, we're going to see that path take some interesting turns. So we almost have that third victim, Spider-Man. But of course, the shot misses. Sin Eater doesn't care. Not one bit. A person in the crowd is shot, and the crowd is angry. They're looking at Spider-Man saying he's just as bad as the Sin Eater, and I want to say that is wrong. There is some similarity at a core level. Don't lynch me for saying that. This is at a very, very core level. Spider-Man, Daredevil, other heroes, they are also seeking a certain degree of replacement. For Spider-Man, it's the idea of failing his father figure, probably the same for Daredevil, and they're trying to appease that feeling. No, they don't go out killing people, they go about a different path. There's that idea of balancing the odds, making the wrong things right, so they choose an image an identity, as well as paraphernalia to follow through with that. So you're looking at two types of characters coming from the same or similar point of origin. A loss, trauma, something of that nature, that changes them to go outside the quote-unquote norm. After all, it's been said many times, starting with Miller, that by all rights, Daredevil should have been a villain. Looking at Daredevil's origin, his origin tale is not unlike a villain's. Let's look at some of Spider-Man's rogues, the Vulture. He got screwed over by a business partner, sought revenge. Sandman started by being abandoned by his father and dealing with bullies. Dr. Octopus was also bullied by his father and other kids, browbeaten by his mother into hostility. So we have lost trauma, bullies. Okay, that's all within Daredevil's origin, isn't it? Here's another thing. Vulture, Sandman, Octopus, they all got their powers and abilities by accident. Much like Matt was in an accident that took his sight. Daredevil was abandoned by his mother, bullied relentlessly, blinded in an accident, bullied some more, and then his father was killed. So if you're looking at villains and serial killers, Daredevil could have gone that way very, very easily, if not for people like Horace Rosenthal. Even Spider-Man could have. He was abandoned by his parents, bullied, gains power through an accident, and loses his father figure. These two could have so easily slid the other way and become a killer like the Sin Eater. Because like them, it's clear Sin Eater has what he perceives to be a higher mission. But to bring this back on point a little bit within the scene... The fact that Spider-Man cares enough about the bystanders to stop his fight and check on them, just like he did with Mr. Popchick last week, which I made a note of mentioning, it shows how far he went to the light side. And for Exhibit B, in the fight, Spider-Man sees Gene DeWolf's missing badge that I mentioned, and that throws him off balance for a moment. 
yes, there may be that baseline similarity between a costume villain and a costume hero or a real-world serial killer. But there are those major differences. Spider-Man caring about the crowd, being unnerved by Gene DeWolf's badge, and Aunt May, the things that he cares about. There's a human emotion to that. For as much as Spider-Man and Daredevil have backgrounds that seeded villainy in others, they have compassion. They have the people that make a difference. Aunt May, Foggy, Jack Murdock, Uncle Ben. They have emotional anchors that help them move towards the good side of things rather than the villainous side of things. Now this fight, I want to make a big point of this. Spider-Man is stunned for a moment and Sin Eater gets that opening. He pops Spidey in the mouth, which draws blood. And since this villain has no emotional connection, he exploits Spider-Man's emotional connection. So Spider-Man's bleeding. He's trying to take care of the people around them. And the Sin Eater is just kind of like, nope, this is Tuesday. I'm going to beat you now. Here's the thing that also underscores something odd about the Sin Eater. The killer takes a solid shot from Spider-Man. Spider-Man knocks him the F down. And the Sin Eater gets back up. Spider-Man has super strength. He can lift up to two tons, according to Ohatmu. A punch from Spider-Man, even a pulled punch, could potentially knock a normal person's jaw off. Now combine that with the idea that when Daredevil sensed the Sin Eater last issue, he sensed an increased heartbeat. What does this mean, Dave? Well, it seems we are dealing with a metahuman to some degree, not an average killer per se. Yes, so far the Sin Eater is using pretty much normal terrestrial killing methods, but there's something more to this guy. He also seems pretty smart and pretty up on Spider-Man's methods. He sheds that spider tracer and gets away. Now, both of these fighters were focused on the task, but Spider-Man, because of those pesky emotional anchors, retains his humanity and shifts his focus to more rescue-oriented. Of course, Spidey switches back to Peter, finds that Aunt May is okay, but the poor guy in the crowd who got shot isn't as lucky as we will see next week. So for his troubles trying to stop the Sin Eater, Spider-Man has a split lip. He also gets chewed out by Mr. Popchick for getting separated in the crowd. Sometimes Spider-Man can't win. Well, sometimes neither can Daredevil. Because Daredevil finally arrives on the scene, but cannot sense the Sin Eater who is getting away on a city bus. This is slowly becoming a theme for Daredevil, late to the party. That's going to be a continuing theme. I'm trying to figure out what took him so long to get into costume. Did he have to pee? Was the costume hidden somewhere? I'm not sure. The truth is, it probably just had to suit the story. And looking here at the background, when Daredevil shows up, there's a bus going by with a sign that shows that the Daily Bugle is offering a reward for the Sin Eater, who is, ironically, on the bus escaping. So with all of that, the next day, Spider-Man confers with Stan Carter, and learns that Carter is a former S.H.I.E.L.D. agent, and that Stan's partner was killed a few months back. With so few leads even still, Spider-Man decides to investigate Jean's sealed apartment, a crime scene, just to see if they had missed anything. The thing about this scene is, Spider-Man mentions that if the Sin Eater kills another person, it's on his shoulders. That's a very big character trait on Spider-Man, and I have more to say about this next week due to time, but earmark that. It's on Spider-Man's shoulders. And now we come to what is a Sin Eater, the concept, the name. Here it's described as somebody eating food laid out on the chest of the deceased, thus absorbing that person's sin. It's very rooted in the Christian religion. Now, first off, Peter David mentions that this occurs in places like the Ozarks. I live in the Ozarks. I have never heard of that being done in this area. However, with a little bit more research, it turns out this practice died out in the early 20th century. Historically speaking, the sin eater concept originated in Scotland and South England. Mourners would seek out the most detestable person in the city. 
and they would offer bread, beer, and a stool over the casket of the dead, along with a sixpence for their trouble. So the concept was by eating this over the sin of the dead, they absorbed those sins onto themselves because, well, they're screwed anyway, right? Now, sometimes the sin eater would say an incantation before eating this food or sin. Now, supposedly this cleansed the dead of their sins before going into the afterlife while carrying the sins themselves. So a sin eater carrying that sin is seen as a somewhat selfless act. It's an act of honor. Here, however, we have our sin eater who doesn't eat. He takes trophies symbolizing the core sin of the victim. And most obviously, he kills that person rather than performing the service post-mortem. This is kind of like a car detailer, vandalizing cars to get business. It doesn't quite work in the same way. What this brings into our concept of the sin eater is the idea of religion and spiritual authority, religious authority, combining that with victims of authority within the legal system, giving us a kind of law versus religion idea which, well, let's be honest, can be conflicting at times. And yet we have this ranking captain and a judge who seemingly have no connection, beyond the legality versus divine. Are we dealing with a person of faith who has faced the legal system? But we have these motivations coming from two very different areas. Morality versus legality. And suddenly you want to find out who this person is. You want to find out why they're doing this. There's intrigue there. You've piqued our interest. Now as to Stan Carter, to go from a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent to a police detective seems like a step down. And of course, S.H.I.E.L.D. isn't known for staying within moral boundaries, so maybe Stan couldn't deal with that. We're going to find out more about that later. Of course, Stan seems to have that moral ambiguity that would come with a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent because he unofficially approves of Spider-Man checking out the apartment. But that could also come down to Stan feeling desperate. He has no single lead or clue. It's not going anywhere. So before we go to Jean's apartment, we stop to another scene with that creepy young man visiting a confession, admitting that he hears voices. So we have a guy hearing voices, a pious man because he's visiting a confessional, and this unknown character. We may need to watch this guy. He may be trouble. But after that quick stop, we do go to find Spider-Man sneaking into Gene's apartment, just desperately trying to find something, some overlooked clue. But the only thing that he finds is an envelope of pictures of Spider-Man. So we have an excessively desperate Spider-Man, and we see that drive really coming clear to us. Against his own admission that it doesn't work that way, he tries to use his spider sense to find a clue. So he's grasping at straws, and really with this scene, this is where I saw the inking changes become noticeable. Now instead of looking inconsistent, because normally many inkers can cause a really horrible art quality, this actually adds to the appropriate mood of some scenes. Some scenes have a, a grainy, gritty quality, others a little bit more clear. This scene has a very gritty quality to it, which kind of ends when Spider-Man discovers the pictures, which are just a real kick in the gut. I mean, we actually have one where it's Spider-Man and the black cat is cut out of it. So signaling maybe some jealousy, maybe some more emotional attachment than we thought. I have to admit that the ambiguity of this scene, just the idea of what was Jean's mindset towards Spider-Man, what did those pictures really mean, added to the fact that we're never really going to find out since Jean is gone. This was a scene that stayed with me very, very clearly on the first read through and apparently stayed with Peter as well. And maybe this is the scene most associated with the story title, The Sin of Pride. If Peter or Jean hadn't kept their pride up, who knows? She could have been the next Mary Jane or Betty Brant. It just goes to underscore that woulda, coulda, shoulda when somebody leaves our life through death. But of course, this search comes up empty-handed and we move to the funerals of both Jean DeWolf and Horace Rosenthal, held on the same day in the same cemetery. Peter attends Jean's funeral and introduces himself to Stan Carter. Of course, these two haven't met in that guise. Now, I notice here Gene DeWolf's funeral is very well attended. It's crowded. 
Rosenthal's is more moderately attended, and perhaps we're looking at more family and friends at Horace's funeral versus the entire police force. Because, of course, police support their own. When one of them falls, they support that. They're a brotherhood. And we have this scene where Jean's mother is seen screaming at Jean's father, and, you know, this is a payoff to the setup from the opening of last issue, and it makes this stab in the heart with an icicle very real. The thing I like best is that David has set this moment up very clearly and doesn't talk down to us by re-explaining the context. He essentially created a story within the story of what this family is going through, and we're going to see what that results in in just two issues' time. And like many of us would be, Stan and Peter both show themselves being awkward in the crowd. Their helplessness and internal frustration shows in the artwork. It's very clear that this emotional turmoil that they're witnessing is very much prodding them even further. It brings it all home in a lot of ways. Now, at Rosenthal's funeral, Matt suddenly notices the heartbeat of the Sin Eater in the gathering. Now, it's slower than normal, but he's catching it. But he is unable to find the killer before the funerals depart, as everybody's dispersing all at once. Think about this. This is blood chilling. The killer is at one of the two funerals. And that, of course, means, if you're reading along, he's possibly visible in these pages. And we have Daredevil hesitating once again. Because how is he supposed to explain how what he's seeing without revealing that he's Daredevil? So once again, the Sin Eater gets away because of that hesitation. I want to speak to this. There have been criticisms of this story about Matt's actions. Hesitating long enough for Judge Rosenthal to be killed, hesitating here, all to quote-unquote protect his secret identity. First of all, when Judge Rosenthal was killed, Matt was off balance thanks to the Sin Eater's shotgun blast and by Rosenthal's begging. It's a lot to take in. It was a lot of shock. It was something very counter to the person he knew, as well as the physical disorientation of his senses. Secondly, here, Matt cannot pin down the Sin Eater in the crowd. Even if he does, he mentions that the DA wouldn't take the testimony. So let's say Matt did shout out that the Sin Eater is here. The police hold the person, but where's the evidence? Where's the smoking gun? Your witness is a blind man, who has also been lying about the level of his blindness while masquerading as a superhero at night. Let's be honest, the Sin Eater would walk. And now the Sin Eater would know the police are on to him, so he gets the heck out of Dodge and is never seen again. Even if Matt lets out that he is Daredevil and lays out how his senses work, we're still looking for evidence. I doubt that a search warrant would even be issued on such a flimsy accusation. Knowing Matt the way I do, I believe Matt has thought this through, much to his detriment. The risk is high on both sides of the fence, and eventually he does come down to the side of self-sacrifice, finding a way to make it work, or just being desperate, another theme in the story, but he just comes to that decision too late because he is weighing all of this. In both instances, there are circumstances that Matt can't overcome. He couldn't stop Rosenthal. He probably had no chance to begin with. Even if he moved to action, Rosenthal would have been injured or what have you. We're dealing with seconds in that instance and Matt being impeded by that shotgun blast and basically his senses going all over the place. In the funeral, to make this decision, Matt had to really weigh the options. There's a lot at stake. So while the outcome not only echoes this sort of failure aspect... It also kind of weighs in on Matt's character that he's thought this through long enough to realize, okay, it's worth the self-sacrifice. He was willing to go there. So I think some of those criticisms are invalid. Did Matt go through it as quickly as he could have? Maybe not, but it wasn't an easy decision to make. And while we're here, let's pin something to the wall. Jolly Jonah Jameson mentions that he and Ned Leeds are heading to Florida, which will leave their wives, Marla Jameson and Betty Brant Leeds, respectively, alone. Yes, that will play into next week, and we have Reverend Tolliver already criticizing the police. Now, of course, he's seen this kind of failure before. We've had two deaths, and the Sin Eater is not only out there, there's no Leeds. And finally, this scene ends with Peter riding in a car with J. Jonah Jameson, 
and Peter vows to get the killer. He swears by it, he vows there will be no more deaths at the Sin Eater's hands. Well, spoiler, we move back to the priest who took the confessional from the creepy guy earlier in the story. And the priest gets a visit from a Sin Eater, which means he gets blown away. So, well, Peter kind of failed that. One more death there. And of course, we've seen this set up. The creepy guy has visited the priest twice. Despite that, there was still a shock to this killing. And the priest's death makes the Sin Eater's third official victim, Gene Rosenthal, and now a priest. Wait a minute. He's breaking format. Legal, legal, religious. This throws me way off balance. And of course, sets up a lot of conversation we're going to have next week, as this is a very gripping cliffhanger. I'm going to move into my final verdict. This story is becoming a tight murder mystery, a very 80s crime movie of the week, Hill Street Blues type of story. We have our killer on the table. There are clues, but they won't become clear until after the fact, despite the fact that they really are right in our face. And the idea of pride, the story's title, subtly weaves its way through the story. We have Ernie Popchick's wounded pride, Spider-Man's pride having possibly been in his way with Gene DeWolf. We have Daredevil's wounded pride, failing Rosenthal, unable to catch the killer. It's there, but that's just not right in your face. Buckler provides an above-board base to allow a team of inkers to give the story tones that change. It shouldn't work. By all odds, this should be a mess. But the inconsistency works. We are dealing with a lot of tones to this story, as well as a character that's not necessarily native to this type of tale. The Sin Eater is blood-chilling, and despite some instances of metahuman powers, he works as a real-world threat, as tangible as the Zodiac Killer or Ted Bundy. And here at the halfway point of the story, we have a villain that could walk our streets, and both Daredevil and Spider-Man are helpless. So where are we with our characters here? Spider-Man is emotionally involved, and that goes deeper with the squandered potential of what could have been with Gene. Daredevil is dealing with his failure. The Sin Eater is always just out of grasp and one step ahead. And of course, both heroes are dealing with their conscience. Both are dealing with this frustration in different ways. Matt is going inward, becoming quieter, more introspective, more analytical. Spider-Man is far more active, pretty much grasping at straws anything he can find. He's been defeated outright by the Sin Eater, and now he's taking the Sin Eater's next steps on his shoulders, which of course leads him to that search of Gene's apartment. And of course we have Mr. Popchick, who has physically been assaulted, and to add insult to injury, the criminals who did it are out on the street, and he feels insulted that this is the reward for his service in World War II. It's not a typical hero and villain tale. It's a more police procedural with superpowers occasionally. And as fast as this issue felt like it went, the next two weeks are going to show what a great merging of these two genres look like. So buckle your seatbelts and get ready. For now, I'm going to take a quick break, play a promo for W. Blaine Dollar's show covering the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown, and I shall be back with some emails right after this. In 1939, Timely Comics published its first issues. It later changed its name, first to Atlas Comics and then to Marvel Comics. In 2014, Marvel polled its fans asking for the 75 greatest Marvel stories from those 75 years and published that list in print form. The unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown will walk through all 75 of these stories every Wednesday from December 31, 2014 to June 1, 2016. Join me, Blaine Dowler, and a cadre of other hosts, including established podcasting greats and emerging talents, as we run through the list, discuss each story in the context of its original release, and determine just what makes it so great. The unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown can be found at Bureau42.com, on iTunes, and on Stitcher. 
Welcome back. Time this week for a couple of emails. Now, I do want to remind everybody that if they want to drop a line to the show, the email address is mail at daredevilpodcast.com. This week we have two emails. The first one is from the mighty Brad Dade with a subject line of Netflix DD. Brad writes, Hi Dave, really happy you went back to give the Netflix Daredevil series another look. When it first came out, it took me some time to get through it. This was due to my wife watching it as well, and I had to wait until she was in the mood to watch another episode. After we finished the season, I went back and binge-watched on my own. While I thought it was great on the first viewing, I absolutely loved it the second time around. There is one particular scene I wanted to talk about. During episode 10's Nelson v. Murdoch, Matt explains what led him to going out at night and beating people up. Matt talks about when his abilities started to kick in and all the sirens he would hear and the abusive father he could hear nearby. I had a revelation. In this short speech, they perfectly summarized why he puts on a costume better than Peter Parker's great power comes great responsibility or the death of Bruce Wayne's parents. See, we all know that intellectually there is suffering in the world, but for Matt, it is literally in his face every day. Imagine that every day someone is trying to drown you. Your natural instinct will be to fight back. Matt is drowning in the suffering of others every single day. And of course, Matt is a fighter and will fight that person trying to drown him every day and never give up. What blew me away is this interpretation of Matt I got from a TV show, not comics. That is how in tune the TV show team is with the character. On an unrelated note, are there any plans for more spin-off episodes chronicling Jack Kirby's Captain America run? Love the one you did. As I said in a previous email, I'm finally starting to appreciate Kirby's art and I'm slowly going back to look at his books. As always, thanks for one great podcast. Cheers, Brad Dade. I'm going to comment on these reverse. There's no immediate plans for more Kirby Captain America, but if anybody out there wants to hear more of that, I'm more than glad to make a few episodes and slide them in as bonuses. So just let me know again, mail at daredevilpodcast.com or tweet me, Facebook me, whichever means you prefer. And Brad, I gotta say, you just blew my mind. The idea that Matt has all of that in his face, and that's why we had the origin change that we did that led him to go out and do that. And one of my complaints, I guess, if you want to label it that, was that we didn't see him go after the fixer, Daredevil's traditional starting point. With this email, you've kind of allayed that. You make perfect sense, and they kind of played with that concept of Matt drowning in a world of sound and sense in the original Daredevil movie from 2003. Especially the director's cut, in which Matt actually sees, quote-unquote sees, I should say, a murder victim, Lisa Tazio, crawling across the floor to him, as he's about to lay down in his sensory deprivation tank. So while our senses do let us know, yes, there are people hungry, there are people being beaten, murdered, Matt feels that on a different level, kind of like listening to music. We can listen at a reasonable volume, and it's great music. If we turn that up too far, it starts rattling our brain pan, and we can't stand it. And I think the term drowning is absolutely perfect. I think you nailed it so far on the head that I'm actually kind of angry that I didn't think of it. And unfortunately, I just don't have much more to add. I think you perfectly summarized it. And you also made the great point of how in tune with the character and how in-depth the TV team went in interpreting Matt in a different way, but in a very valid, valid way at the same time. So really, really good point, Brad. Definitely appreciate that. Thank you for taking the time to drop that email. That is perfect. And our next email this week is from Mr. Chris Mounts, just entitled Feedback. Chris writes, Dave, you are getting a lot of Daredevil My Trial of the Hulk coverage lately. Sure, Matt is a great lawyer, but why didn't Bruce call She-Hulk to defend him? Where is Lee and Michael? Why won't you read my Hulk Doc Samson flash fiction? Who is this Bob doing Superman Forever Radio? Confused and afraid, Chris Mounts, leader of the Teen Brigade. All right, Chris, let's just take a deep breath and go over this. 
When the issues that I covered in issues 68 and 69 came out, She-Hulk had not been introduced. She was not introduced till 1980. Technically 79, but let's not split hairs. Secondly, I should have had Lee on for those episodes. Lee being my former co-host on Pad Smash. I didn't think of it at the time because those episodes were right at the end of a certain production run. And time was of the essence, and it turned out that, well, time kind of bit me right in the ass. As far as Pad Smash, currently that website is no longer in effect. I did let the domain name lapse because I'm an idiot. But at some point, I will make the Pad Smash episodes available once again. I'm not sure where. And if anybody is interested, I did happen to find a couple of lost episodes of Pad Smash. So if you are interested in hearing a lost episode or two, let me know. I will get those edited and put out and made available somewhere. As far as Bob on Superman Forever Radio, that is Mr. Bob Fisher who took over the show after I stepped down. Bob is doing a phenomenal job. I totally endorse him and I want everybody to go listen to Superman Forever Radio at supermanforever.com. Bob picked up the baton with episode 79 forward and has totally, totally been nailing it. I'm very proud of what Bob's doing over there. I just want to take a moment to applaud him. So check out Superman Forever Radio. But Chris, everything's going to be okay. This is Dave's Daredevil Podcast, not Pad Smash. And I'm always going to be here to do this show. Unless I, you know, die or something. Well, that turned morbid real quick. So before we get even worse, I'm just going to say thank you for your email, Chris. Always appreciate hearing from you and appreciate you still being the leader of the Teen Brigade. So as mentioned up top here, if you want to drop an email, it is mail at daredevilpodcast.com. But that brings us to the end of another broadcast day. Next week, we pick up with the Gene DeWolf storyline with issue 109 of The Spectacular Spider-Man, in which somebody probably dies. But seriously, it's going to be a hell of a conversation, so join me next week. Until then, I am J. David Weeder. Justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks network of podcasts. You can find the show's home at twotruefreaks.com. Also, choose to like the network on Facebook. Simply search for Two True Freaks. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash daveweeder, and you can email the show. The address is mail at daredevilpodcast.com. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right, simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf. And you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and keep the lights on at 2TrueFreaks at the same time. What a deal. Daredevil and all related characters are copyright Marvel Entertainment Group, all rights reserved. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not draw profit from the references to the characters herein. All music and sound clips are used for entertainment purposes. All rights lie with the copyright holder. Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a production of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Until next time, I am J. David Weeder. Thank you so much for listening.